Okay, we're carrying on with our Galatians series, and, and really as we faithfully just work through the, the scriptures, um, we're, we're, we're trying to equip ourselves to be people of faith in, in the world. Um, we can't do that if we don't immerse ourselves in God's word. Um, we, we can't live off a sermon once a week, off the odd podcast. Um, the whole point of preaching verse by verse, just faithfully, diligently through Galatians, these weeks and months that it will take us, is so that we get shaped by the word of God. Every thought, every deed, every attitude, every behavior, um, to begin to help us to develop a day-by-day dependency um, to hear from the Lord uh, in each moment. So uh, we're going to carry on where Ken left off last Sunday. I'm picking up at the start of chapter 2. Um, if you've not been about or you're not familiar with the story, um, then feel free in your own time just to read through Galatians as a, as a letter. You could probably in about, I've, I read it through in about 17 minutes if you want to do it in one sitting for your homework. But we'll pick up in chapter 2 uh, today. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for reminding us that we're your family, baptised into Christ, baptised into one family. Um, Lord, thank you so much. We can celebrate new birth. These last few weeks, welcoming a number of new babies, we can celebrate too and say thank you for for Jack um, at the other end of life. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us now this morning again as we just faithfully work through these verses, as we grapple with these scriptures, speak into our hearts, build us up, strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 2, 14 years later, um, and again, I'm sorry, we're coming partway through a story. If you're watching a box set, you'd usually get a previously. Uh, I'm not going to give you that. You can read it yourselves. Um, but previously, uh, Paul's begun his story. And, and now he says, after the first three years of following Jesus, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith 
in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. I'll probably leave it there and and perhaps next week just finish off chapter 2. Paul v. Peter, I guess you could uh, characterise this morning's message. (coughs) There have been some amazing battles and face-offs down through the years. Um, Ali versus Foreman, the rumble in the jungle, for those of you that like your boxing. Or was it the 70 World Cup? Some of you, uh, the year before I was born, uh, that, that amazing Gordon Banks save from the Pele header that he got round the post somehow. Was that 1970? Someone? Yeah, yeah. What, what an amazing face-off that was. Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. I, I love the Napoleon and Wellington stories. Or if you're watching The Darkest Hour at the cinema right now, Churchill versus Hitler. If you like your current Brexit politics, David Davis versus Michelle Barnier. And that's never been put in the same sentence as Ali and Foreman before. Here we have Peter and Paul. Um, actually, it's not Peter versus Paul. It's the gospel of grace versus another gospel. In fact, as we saw in the first couple of weeks, no gospel at all. Paul says if it's not the gospel of grace, it's gospel plus something, gospel plus law, gospel with tradition added to it, man's ideas added to it, culture added to it, ethnic preferences, self-merit and effort. It's gospel plus that, Paul says, versus the gospel of grace. Remember here, Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia that he helped to plant uh, and he's calling them back to the true gospel and he's using his story. We're immersed in a story right now, but we've got to see it in the context of the letter Um, and he's trying to help them understand the, the truth, the validity of this gospel of grace and their error in turning back to the law or adding the old Jewish law. He's helping them to see that this gospel that he's been faithfully preaching amongst them is a gospel that's agreed by all the apostles, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity. And when any of them have moved away, they've rightly come back to the gospel of grace as well. That's what he's trying to do here. So let's just work through some of these verses together. What's with the numbers here? The 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem. If you read back into where we began last um, last, uh, last week, probably he's 17 years or so since the moment this man previously called Saul was knocked off his horse on the Damascus Road, had a revelation of Jesus and became a Christ follower, having been a Christ persecutor. Um, 17 years later, it seems, uh, uh, he went to see the apostolic team at the Jerusalem base where I guess the main church base was still. If you want to read around the Galatians letter, you can, you can read the kind of parallel story uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, and you find Paul going up to Jerusalem in Acts 11 uh, and in Acts 15 as well. And commentators can't decide, what, was this moment in Galatians Acts 11 or was it Acts 15? They don't know. Some say it was one, some say it was the other, some say it was a bit of both. The same kinds of things happen at both. My own view is it was probably Acts 15. I think the themes in this letter better fit um, the sort of things that are going on in Acts 15. But it could have happened at either gathering. Either way, 17 years since Paul began following Jesus Christ. There's no rushing with God. I think it's just worth saying that as an aside. Um, that Within a generation of Jesus dying on the cross, ascending into heaven, giving his spirit uh, to the church, within one generation... Uh, those first apostles, um, up to John the Apostle, who wrote, who wrote Revelation right at the end, lived the longest out of them, probably up to maybe late 80s, 90 AD. Within that one generation, the gospel spread rapidly right around the Roman Empire, in fact, even beyond that in one generation. But the Bible is also very, very plain that God's development of us as people um, often takes time. 
17 years here for Paul, often through kind of wilderness-type experiences, shaping times. We just see time after time in the Bible those examples. Abraham, in the beginning, leaving his father's house. Joseph, being sold by his brothers into slavery, down into Egypt, into prison. Um, Moses, um, killing an Egyptian 400 years later and then running off into the desert for decades on his own. David, anointed to be king, then having to flee from Saul, his persecutor, hiding in caves, going over to the Philistines. Maybe even Jesus himself, 30 years or so of obscurity. We don't have the stories written down other than his birth account and as a 12-year-old going to the temple. We don't know what went on in those times. Certainly Paul, these kind of 14 to 17 years, he's not in the limelight. The stories haven't been written down for us. For Kaz and I, it wasn't quite as dramatic, but we had 10 years in the frozen north. That was our, uh, that was our wilderness period. Apologies if you're from the north. We love it there. Um, it's great, but that was how it was for us, a shaping time. Um, out of the heat and the noise and the centre of things. Do you know, if you're in such a time right now, please don't worry. Don't be afraid. Um, God's interested in shaping our character. He's interested in shaping obedience in us. He's interested, I think Rich shared it last week, in in fruitfulness, the stuff, you know, the vine and the branches, the pruning, the stuff that just takes time to produce. He wants fruit and fruit that will last in our lives. God is never in a hurry to fast-track things, whatever our kind of urgency. Um, He he just measures success in our lives very differently to how we would measure it ourselves. Um, I read a quote from Terry Virgo this week, uh, in times of delay and disappointment, don't make decisions to escape the process. God's purpose and timings are perfect. thought that was helpful. Maybe if you feel you're in what was for Paul like a 14 to 17 year black hole right now, can I encourage you, hold on to God's purposes. Hold on to his promises. Be faithful with what's in front of you right now. Serve God right now. Keep serving him with joy and contentment and God will open the doors at the right time for the greater promises. But know that he's doing something significant in your life right now and in your character right now that will produce fruit further down the line. We should have an amen to that, I think. It's not particularly in the text, but it's worth saying. We find these characters, you need a cast list for Galatians, really. Uh, Just to comment on on Barnabas and Titus. Um, Barnabas originally was sent by the apostolic team in Jerusalem up to the new church plant in Antioch amongst the the kind of Greek culture. It was was Barnabas who first went and found Paul uh, out in the wilderness somewhere and brought him to help join his team in, in Antioch. Titus was probably a younger man, again from a Greek background. He was one of those, I think we said in the first week when we were looking at what it means to be an apostle, um, that was on Paul's team, uh, Paul and Barnabas' team, who was developing in his apostolic call and, and, and gift. Titus was later sent by Paul into the Corinth church, and he must have had something about him to go into a church where Paul writes to them, your meetings do more harm than good. Um, You don't just send the boy in to those. He must have had something of the call of God as an apostle uh, from Paul's team that he'd learned there. It was later that that, um, he left Titus behind uh, on the island of Crete where they planted churches rapidly uh, so that Titus could appoint elders uh, in those churches. So having looked in, if you're not sure, what's the whole apostolic thing? Have a listen back on the internet to the first few verses where we tackle Galatians at the start of of January. It's just a little bit more insight here to this idea of these teams working together, how they serve the churches, their relational uh, approach, and their flexibility in moving around from from place to place. And Paul says, we we went to uh, Jerusalem as a result of a revelation in verse 2. 
Um, chapter 1, verse 12, he, he, he says, I received the gospel by revelation. Paul's not talking about that kind of revelation here. The lights have come on. Wow, I see Jesus has died for me on the cross. I need to repent and give my life to him. That's a wonderful revelation. It's not the kind of revelation Paul's talking about here. It's not about the gospel. He's saying, I went to Jerusalem because God revealed to me that I needed to go there. And again, when we read through Paul's life and exploits, particularly the Acts of the Apostles help us with this, um, he often makes decisions about where to go, where to serve God, where to target the apostolic team on the basis of dreams and visions and prophetic words. It's just how Paul functions. We still want to function that way today as well. They first left Antioch and went off on Paul's first missionary journey because they were in a time with the elders in Antioch and they were praying and fasting and the Holy Spirit said to them, Acts 13, 1, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. So... Uh, <laughs> <coughs> Paul had a, um, uh, a revelation and he goes up to Jerusalem and really here he's, he's checking in uh, with, I guess with head office for want of a better expression. Um, he's checking in on his gospel. Um, he's been teaching in obscurity, out in the sticks somewhere. Is my message in line with the gospel they're teaching and they hold to at the apostolic base? Am I running in vain? Um, I, I, as Nick, Nick gave a glowing endorsement of running, I've got a little niggly injury, but I'll be back to it. But I have had to cancel my marathon plans for the, the spring. I'll get back there. I was just reading uh, about the Venice Marathon towards the end of last year, 2017. And they're not a particularly big one, but they do attract some elite runners because they've got some prize money. And as ever, there was a group of amazing Kenyans and Ethiopians in the front pack on the men's race. And uh, not far to go from the end of the race, having run, I don't know, 24 kilometres, uh, uh, sorry, 40 kilometres of a 42-kilometre marathon, the motorcycle that leads the front pack took a wrong turn and went off course and went about a kilometre off course before he came back on track having realised his error. There was an unknown local runner who was just behind the elite pack at the front who just carried on going the right way and won the race. It was amazing. Um, and, and the Kenyans were beaten um, for once. We love the Kenyans. Um, Paul's saying, have I gone off track? Am I running the same race as the apostolic team in Jerusalem? Have I been running in vain? Have I gone off in the wrong direction? Have I followed the lead of, of cultural preference? Have I gone into some error? Have I tracked down the wrong course? Worse, am I taking people with me in that? Again, it shows a real heart of integrity in Paul and in his team. He doesn't want to do or say anything to water down the true gospel. And he wants to, he values the input of the apostolic team. Uh, there's a, a healthy kind of mutual submission. Again, it's how we seek to work imperfectly still in our day to day with apostolic teams. I spent the day on Friday with Dave Holden and, uh, and others who, who are part of the, 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 who lead the apostolic team with New Ground that we're part of, this family of churches. It was wonderful just to share hearts, to, to ask questions, for them to speak into us through, through me. The, the same dynamic still happens. I don't think Paul thought he had gone off track with the gospel. I don't think he was nervous about that. Um, his gospel had been very clear and simple. Uh, we studied it in the first week, I think, chapter 1, verse 4. I mean, you could summarise it just in that verse. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. I mean, that's it, really. It's so clear. His point in writing this to the Galatians and telling them this story is this, hey, you guys have moved off from the main point of the gospel. Um, as I preached to you then, when I planted these churches, I'm still preaching now. I haven't moved, but you have. And he's telling this story to demonstrate that point. Uh, but it is clear from this letter, 
And particularly from this section that we're in now, that Paul wants to avoid a, a divided church. A, a, is there a different gospel for the Jewish Christians from the non-Jewish Christians, what they call the Gentiles, or the, the kind of out of the Greek culture? Verse 2, I think Paul does it with a desire for unity. He goes to the apostles privately. Uh, it says in verse 2, he doesn't stir up. He's not standing on a soapbox. He goes to those in leadership. Even there, it's just showing a desire. No, unity is more important. Agreement is more important. Um, he doesn't want to develop a church for the Gentiles. Oh yeah, well I'll get on and do a Gentile church, a, a non-Jewish church. My team can handle that. You guys, you can have a different set of rules for the, for the Jewish church, another team, another rules. No, all that Paul is saying and doing is with the aim, the heart of, of oneness, of, of unity. Later on to the Corinthian church, he writes on a similar theme, 1 Corinthians 1.12. Uh, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul, speaking of himself, crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? He's saying it's, it's a nonsense, isn't it, that you should follow this set of apostles and not those, or these and not those. He says later, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1, Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's the same gospel, whether you're Jewish or whether you're not from a Jewish background. Jesus Christ on the cross with power to save us. The same access, the same way in for all of us, the same doorway, Jesus Christ, the same saviour, the same hope. There's one Lord Jesus, one hope, one cross, one resurrection, one ascension, one giving of the Holy Spirit, one baptism into one Lord, one church, one gospel, one set of apostolic teaching. Paul is very clear about that. It's evidently going to look and sound different in different parts of the world. We talk today that missionary language of contextualisation. That's a word Danny loves using. He's learned it now with his great Portuguese and English, um, where, where we recognise now the gospel's the same, but in order to help this culture or this ethnic group understand it, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll try and use different language to explain it. But it's the same gospel. It doesn't change anywhere around the world through any generation. And Paul is defending and contending for this with the Galatians by telling him these stories of his encounters with the team in Jerusalem. Some interesting uh, um, sentences here, verse 4, where he talks about these false brothers who come, who are sowing their seeds of doubt and division, trying to set aside the gospel. It's interesting, he calls them false brothers. Um, we had a, Paul brought a word about being family today. If we're family in Christ, if we've been baptised into Christ, we are brothers and sisters, both of Jesus, our perfect elder brother, who's gone before us, made a way to the Father, brings us there. It's wonderful gospel truth there. But we're also brothers and sisters of, of one another. We love one another because we've been loved and accepted by Christ. In calling these guys who are infiltrating the Jerusalem church and council false brothers, He's saying they are not brothers at all. They're actually outside of Christ. They're not committed to this gospel that we've committed to together. They are committed to a different message. It's, it's just eloquent words. Um, their eloquent words produce a, the fruit of a divided church. It's a, as he said in chapter 1, it's a non-gospel. It's been emptied. The cross of Christ has been emptied of its power. And he says they've infiltrated, they've just kind of got their way in like spies would. Um, they've snuck in. Um, good at that. They look and sound good on the outside. I, I guess with any kind of forgery or fake, um, the, the fact that it 
is even in any danger of persuading us that it's the real deal is that it's actually quite a, a good imitation. Uh, if it wasn't a good imitation, we wouldn't be fooled by it, would we? So uh, the, the, these false brothers will always look and sound authentic. That's what makes their, their, their subtle attacks so dangerous. And we remain alert today. We need the same discernment today. Paul's response then is true for us today. In verse 5, what does he say? We did not give in to them for a moment. Wow, there we go. What do we do? Do we debate? No, no, we, don't, we didn't give in for a moment. The truth of the gospel is at stake, Paul says. Um, it must remain with you, he says to the Galatians. Uh, in other words, it, don't let it be stolen away from under your noses by these falsehoods. So we don't give in, we don't budge, we stand our ground, we hold firm to the gospel. It's, it's, uh, it's Paul's Churchill moment. Uh, we will fight them on the beaches, that kind of thing. Um, the English Standard Version of the Bible translates it well, I think. He says, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul's saying, my stance here with these Jerusalem apostles, I, I was so strong. We did not yield to these false brothers because it would have implications and consequences for you when we began planting churches in Galatia with the kind of gospel uh, that we would lay down for you. Um, has implications for every future church plant, every future relationship we come into. So you Galatians, you benefit now because we refuse to yield to them. To yield to the message now in Jerusalem, he says, means that in the future other new believers in Greek cultures and non-Jewish cultures will also have to return to the law, come under the law, to add this, this right of circumcision, R-I-T-E, right, if you speak English as a first language. Um, actually, Paul says it's, a, it's like a return to slavery and we've been set free from the law. We've been, Ken was, was excellent last week in showing us we've been set free so magnificently um, from the law. This gospel of grace has been so transforming for all of us, whether you are Jewish or not Jewish. We've all been added into God's people together. Why would we go back to something that binds us again in rules and self-effort and divides us? And Why would we pick up ideas again um, which have already been overturned forever and superseded by the gospel? That's Paul's rhetorical question, I guess, in, in these verses. I love the way he speaks, uh, verse 6, I, I went to those who, uh, who seemed important. And then you get some names a little further down. Oh, just uh, Peter, James, John. Um, just, yeah, yeah, guys I know. Uh, yeah, they probably know me. We're on Facebook friends together. You know. what, what is this about? It's like if, if you're not familiar with the stories of the Bible and the names of the Bible, this passage could be so confusing. Uh, these big names, this guy called Titus who seems to be in the middle of the argument, um, pressure to be circumcised. I mean, what is that about? It seems a crazy argument for us today in 21st century Crawley. But it's at the heart of um, Paul's understanding as to whether there would end up being two different kinds of churches with two different kinds of gospel. A gospel of grace for the non-Jews and a gospel plus add-ons for the Jews with an insistence on these Old Testament traditions being added. Um, Paul was very strong here. I, I think those arguments carried on, actually. Um, they still had potential disagreement. You read in Acts 21, uh, a little while later, um, th this, this, this stuff is still threatening the unity of the whole church, even though they do remain agreed on the main content of the gospel. So these... What Paul's saying is, if these follow, follow the argument here, if these three um, important, 
influential apostles. You know them as Peter the Rock. Jesus called him the rock on which the church will be built. James, the brother of Jesus. You can't argue with him. Um, John, uh, of whom it said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. If these three agreed that Titus, the non-Jew who was with Paul, didn't need to be circumcised, if those three agreed that, then no other non-Jewish believer would need to be circumcised after this either. It, It was enough, therefore, for all new believers simply to repent, to believe in Jesus, to be baptised in water, to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. That's it, Paul says. And if if it was good enough for those three with Titus, it's good enough for the rest of you in the Galatian churches too. And and for us also. We should be grateful for Paul's insistence here, particularly if you're um, one of the kind of 50% who are male. This teaching serves us well today as Gentile believers. Um, Again, some of Paul's refusal to yield um, for the sake of the gospel has been preserved for us too to come into. It means we don't have to blow shafars or observe certain feast days or follow traditional Jewish food regulations or or cut our bodies in certain ways. Obviously, the concern for the Jewish believers was how will, and it was a fair concern, how will, how will people know that you belong to the people of God? These are signs that show that we are distinctive, we're God's people. In the New Covenant we find it's not through outward signs such as circumcision, but changes in our hearts and the coming of the Spirit. Um, Peter himself, who is in the heart of this, this argument, uh, he, he knew it best, he was the one um, earlier on in the story in Acts, who received a vision, I think it got shared last week prophetically, uh, received a vision of a sheet being lowered down, different types of food that as a Jew he wasn't allowed to eat, but God gave him permission to go and eat. And he felt then that it was a sign that he could go to the house of non-Jews and preach the gospel. And so he went to a man called Cornelius's house. And uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, fell on these non-Jews as Peter is preaching. Again, a sign of God's ownership of them. When Peter reports back to, to, to head office in Acts eleven seventeen, he's arguing probably with everyone against him and very nervous about what he's done as a Jew going to the home of a Gentile and preaching the gospel of Jesus. And he says, Acts eleven seventeen, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? That's a pretty good argument Peter gives there. Um, the giving of the Holy Spirit now in the new covenant is a sign that God has added us into his people. That's what he did at Cornelius' house on that day. They've been included now. They've received the same Holy Spirit that we have received and yet they've done nothing else that we did as Jews to receive it other than repent and believe in Jesus. Um, Throughout history, it's the giving of the Spirit actually that marks God's people out as belonging to him. Even in the Old Covenant, it was the pillar of fire that went ahead of the people in the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit that came on David or came on Samson and marked them out as something of having God's hand on them. It was the fire that came down on Mount Carmel with Elijah that that separated him from the prophets of Baal and and said with a big signpost, no, this is one of God's, he belongs to to me. It was the fire that fell on Solomon's temple when when he dedicated it to the Lord. Now the same spirit, the same fire that fell on those Jewish believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, now falls on Gentile, non-Jewish believers too. And what's to stop them from being baptised in that case? It's the same spirit, Peter argues, and Paul as well. So this outward sign of circumcision, given as an act of obedience, oh yeah, we belong to God's people, we better, better follow the law and do what he says. It's no longer necessary now that we're in Christ. 
God's done something in our hearts by his grace through the gospel. Hallelujah. We've had a, uh, we can use this language, a circumcision of heart. We're, we're no longer defined as belonging to God's people because of our birth or whether there are certain things that have been done to our bodies. Our hearts have been changed forever because we've looked to a saviour on the cross who's done everything. The spirit of God has come on us. He's come to make his home in my heart and your heart if you're a follower of Christ. We're, we're, we're brought in. We belong now totally and completely by his grace. Why add anything else to this gospel? Why run any other kind of race, Paul says? Wow. So that the, the, the influential apostolic team in Jerusalem, verse 9, that they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas shows that they are still in agreement with these ideas. Um, even though they recognise, yeah, okay, well, we're going to minister in different places. Um, God's uniquely called us to serve the Jews. He's uniquely called you to serve the non-Jews. Either way, they're agreed. The same gospel applies. Paul says in verse 6, they added nothing to my message. I don't think he's being disparaging. I think he's saying we're in agreement on the, on the gospel. The gospel is the gospel is the gospel. The only difference is God's called us to, into different spheres to plant churches uh, and to preach this gospel. It's important for Paul uh, to say this to the Galatians. Uh, he's showing again, um, you know, where, where is Galatian churches? Where is your primary apostolic input going to come from? You started with me, but are you going to follow some of these false brother Jewish teachers now? Are you going to wander away from me, Paul the Apostle, and go back under the law? Well, let me tell you, uh, I had the right hand of fellowship from the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, that means that Paul and Barnabas are recognised as apostles with them and released as apostles from them to the Gentiles. Therefore, I've got my, my authority to speak into you with this gospel is absolutely validated even by head office. That's effectively what Paul's saying. It's a bit of a power play, but it's a perfectly valid one. He's giving them no wriggle room to say, we're go oh, we're going to look elsewhere and follow another gospel. He's saying, no, us apostles, we're together on this. Here's the gospel. Here's what I'm calling you back to. Verse 10, uh, we read through uh, earlier, um, seems a little bit out of context in the, in the middle of the rest of this passage. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was either eager to do. Um, Paul's context, though, um, I, I think actually means that it fits in um, evidently with the, the, the theme of his message here. He's talking, uh, some translations talk about remember the poor in the church, um, the poor in spirit in the church. He's, he's caring for those, uh, called to care for those within, specifically within the church community back in Jerusalem uh, where these uh, conversations have been taking place. Uh, there's a time of famine in Jerusalem at this point. If you read the background in Acts 11, uh, verse 30, they respond to a prophetic word that the churches will, will uh, collect uh, finance and, uh, and other things to serve uh, the believers back in Jerusalem who are under real pressure at that moment. Again, in the context of this passage and this one gospel and one church we've been talking about, one family we've been hearing about right through the morning, um, this is a beautiful demonstration of what new community in Christ looks like. Different places, different languages, different cultures, Jewish churches, non-Jewish churches, all under the headship of Christ. Therefore, to, to continue to deliberately remember, uh, re deliberately remember, that's easy for you to say, um, the needy Christian believing Jews in Jerusalem, even though my call and my churches are serving out in the Greek world, to deliberately remember those only makes this point about our unity around the gospel uh, even more special. 
We're not saying, oh, okay, you Jews can care after your Jewish Christians. We'll leave your poor believers to your care and we'll serve ours over here. No, no, Paul's, this is again, it's part of Paul being able to say one church, one Lord, one baptism, one set of care and concern for one another. Um, and then finally, we'll just rattle through this so we have time to pray. I think if you read through 11 through to 16, you get that Paul versus Peter, the showdown, uh, the final countdown. Uh, as uh, It was Europe, wasn't it, sang that? Number of years, Nathan Blackburn gave me a nod there. Before your time, mate, probably. You remember that? Yeah. Um, so here we go. Here's the showdown. It seems that Peter has come to Antioch. Um, and, uh, which is Paul and Barnabas' base now. Uh, so the, the argument has moved on. <coughs> and uh, Paul's outlining these specific details here because, again, it's just making, reinforcing his point for the Galatian churches. If, in case you're in any doubt, he's saying, um, that you should even consider turning back to some of the old slavery uh, of, of law and the gospel. Um, Paul says, you know, let me tell you a little story. Even your hero, Peter the Rock, even he got it wrong at one point. This is really strong conflict. It's quite painful. He says, I rebuke Peter to his face. Um, he clearly defines what the apostle Peter is doing and saying as error and hypocrisy. I think in the NIV he uses the word hypocrisy twice. And, and he's aware it's leading others astray because Peter is a very influential guy. Verse 14, Peter tells, uh, Paul tells Peter to his face. We know in Jerusalem he'd spoken with them privately. That's the right way. They'd seem to be in agreement. And everybody knew Peter was in agreement with this gospel of grace. They, they knew his story. He was the hero who'd been the first one to go into the, the Greek uh, world and the Greek culture with the gospel and to Cornelius' house. There was no doubt that Peter received the same gospel and believed in the same gospel. He'd had the first vision. He'd been obedient. He'd been the one that had bravely gone back to Jerusalem and said, well, I seem to have... Uh, seem to have baptised some non-Jews with the same gospel and seen them baptised in the Spirit. Yet now this same Peter has come under some pressure himself. This Peter who lives like a non-Jew in his life, he's not added the law into his life any longer, but he's now pressing the Greek believers to become like Jews. And it's dangerous because of who Peter is and because others are being drawn in, even Barnabas, it says. And so Paul gives a public rebuke. It's necessary. But again, Paul's rebuke is... <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. My wife, when she coughs, she sets me off, you see. Um, or oh, I set her off. Don't blame me, she says. Um, verse 15 and 16, Paul's argument is not based on personality. It's not actually a power struggle. You know, who's, who's the bigger, the better apostle, uh, Paul or, or Peter? It's not based on personality, preference, um, culture. Oh, yeah, Peter, you don't understand. It's a little bit different here in Antioch to your base back in, in Jerusalem. No, no. Paul's argument is based fully and completely on the gospel. That's our start and finish. So he gives this perfect circular argument uh, in verse, uh, verse 16. He says, A man is not justified and not made right with God by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified, made right with God. You couldn't be clearer. If you're not sure about that kind of uh, that, that phrasing, it's hard to follow that argument sometimes. Let me just read how the message paraphrase um, uh, words this. Um, gives Paul this voice. We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well we are not right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith 
in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We've tried it. We had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Amen. So friends, as we finish and pray this morning, what about us? What, what do we learn week by week from this systematic reading through the application of these verses grappling with these foreign ideas that seem so far removed from our lives and worlds, yet still here we are as disciples of Jesus. Let me just quickly give you three things that I'm applying in my life. Again, number one, do we know? Do you know the simple gospel of grace? Um, Have you managed to memorise verse 4 of chapter 1 yet uh, about Christ Jesus who came to rescue us from this present evil age? Maybe you could memorise verse 16 that we've just read there. Or perhaps what we get to um, uh, next week um, about, uh, uh, where are we? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, verse 20. Have you, have you begun to memorise and, and get these truths of the gospel in, into you? Are you meditating on it? Are you talking it with your friends? Those of you that, that uh, God's given children to, are you, are you able to, to, to help them memorise and understand and learn the gospel as you share it with them and pray with them? Are you working this through? If you join a small group community where you're meditating on the gospel, saying these scriptures to one another, praying them through together week after week, are you ready and able to share it uh, with those others that say, hey, how come you've got this hope in your life? This is a huge application for us as we consider the gospel of grace. Maybe, I, perhaps most of you already here this morning are Christ followers, but it may be for one or two. It is a revelation to you for the first time today, this gospel, the good news about Jesus, who's taken your sins, who's ready to rescue you from the present evil age. Do we know this simple gospel of grace? Secondly, have we realised there's nothing else we can add? No Jesus and, no self-effort, no trying harder. I know for most of us, the, 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 the heaviness of the Jewish law is not something that we feel a pressure to keep. But, but we do battle every day with this sense that I've somehow got to try and, having come in through grace, to keep right, to keep pleasing God, to earn my stay in my Father's house, to somehow impress him with my Bible reading plan or my long prayers or my routines or my effort or even just to look right in the eyes of the other believers around me to be seen to be living right, speaking right, behaving right. Friends, can I urge you as we work through these verses week by week to leave that kind of wrong thinking behind and come back into the gospel of grace where there is one church. We've all come the same way through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We've all received the same Holy Spirit as a seal. And so therefore may we all continue to walk with rejoicing in the fact that we belong in the people of God only because we have a saviour who's rescued us and made us his own and keeps us as his own. And thirdly, and allied to that, will we repent of every wrong idea, every other idea, every sly and false thought, every wrong influence that would take us off track and into gospel and gospel plus. At stake is our freedom. Later on in Galatians, we'll get to some beautiful teaching about being sons and daughters and heirs of the promise. And there's the idea that we begin to grow and flourish as we live for God's purposes and Paul is applying to our lives today. Will we, will we do that? Will we begin to flourish or will we return to a bondage where we'll never really bear any fruit? At stake is a church that, that says we will keep the gospel the main thing. Or a church that says, no, we'll begin to move sideways towards other emphases, other ideas, other doctrines, other uh, concerns alongside the gospel. Even some of those things taking precedence. Our application is, will we come back 
we will remain on track with this simple apostolic message of Jesus Christ, crucified, raised, ascended, pouring out his spirit on the church here and around the world. John Stott in his little book, and I, I think I said last week, it's the last week we'll have them, but I have got about nine or ten copies just out there if you want to uh, grab one and, and pay five pounds on the way out. John Stott, I'll finish with this, says, There is only one gospel, the apostolic faith, a recognisable body of doctrine, taught by the apostles of Jesus Christ and preserved for us in the New Testament. If there is only one gospel in the New Testament, there is only one gospel for the church today. Amen? Can we stand and pray together? Now, I'd love us just to finish by uh, saying the Apostles' Creed. We want to learn more and more about the gospel. The Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the apostles. It was written a few hundred years later by the early church fathers who were trying to help churches who were being pulled by all kinds of errors. And they pulled together the apostolic teaching in the New Testament and gave the churches a liturgy which many still use today. We'll read it in a moment. But let's just lift our hands to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gospel. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. Jesus the Nazarene, how, how marvellous, <laughs> how wonderful that me, a sinner, should now be called a saint. We worship you this morning. We thank you for the gospel and it really is finished. It really is complete. It really is enough. Lord, however long it takes for you to shape the gospel in us deeply, to shape our character, Lord, whether it's 14 years, 17 years, a lifetime, we give you our hearts again this morning. We give you our ambitions. We only want to serve you. We only want to serve your gospel. We only, through obedience, want to bear fruit that lasts for you in our lives as the kingdom advances around us. Would you forgive us where we've run in vain? Would you forgive us where we've gone off course, whether it's through cultural pressure, our other ideas, side issues? Lord, even if we've just given up on some of the incredible freedom you've won for us and added extras that have made us slaves again to, to a kind of self-imposed religion. Lord, may more and more as we worship and pray and meet together in this way, may we receive the Spirit as a sign that we belong. May we live free in the fullness and the joy you have for us. And may we reach the world around us, the 100,000 plus out here within five minutes of this building that don't yet know the wonder of this simple gospel. God, as we've heard already today, would you unite us, one diverse family under your headship, sharing in your death and your baptism, sharing in your life, filled with the same Spirit, serving the same mission. Amen. Amen.